BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Hey, welcome back to our program. On the line with us is my buddy, Michelangelo Cinderelli, who is the journalist, commentator, the host of his very own program on Sirius XM Progress right after my program, 3 to 6 p.m. Monday through Friday. Eastern time, that would be, right? (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Michelangelo, welcome back to the program. It's great to have you with us. I I was just blown away. I I get your newsletter, the Cinderelli Report, published over on Substack. I'm one of your subscribers. And I encourage people to Thank sign you. up for it. You do a great job of summarizing the issues of the day and, and occasionally just some hysterical stuff that happens on your program and things. But this one really, really caught my eye and wanted to get you on and talk about it. Tell me about former Texas Solicitor General Jonathan Mitchell. Yes, this is the man who is responsible for writing the Texas anti-abortion law that the Supreme Court found um, could go into effect uh, pending their deciding on it when it finally gets challenged instead of putting an order in in place, keeping it from going into effect because they said it was too novel. He wrote it as a way to get around court review, as you know. He wrote it as a way to stop all abortions in Texas for the time being. And this man also now entered a brief in the Mississippi case that the Supreme Court has taken up to overturn Roe v. Wade. Those arguments are in December. In his brief, he wrote that the Supreme Court should also gut, in addition to Roe v. Wade, Lawrence v. Texas, that is the landmark decision by the court throwing out sodomy bans in the states, establishing a right to sexual privacy in your home, in your bedroom. And he wants them to throw out Obergefell, the marriage equality ruling. It shows how all of these issues are very much tied together. And he is a longtime far-right conservative. He's on retainer from the Alliance Defending Freedom. This is a right-wing legal group that has advocated for criminalization of homosexuality around the world, recriminalization of homosexuality in this country. And he's on retainer for what's just referred to as religious liberty issues. So this is the way they are going to move forward, particularly on LGBT rights and marriage equality, carving out religious exemptions, as we've seen them doing with bakeries and florists and this and that. They, they're going to try to carve out exemptions so they just hollow it out, sort of as they've done over the years with Roe v. Wade. They've, they've pretty much created more and more that just kind of takes it down, chips away at it over the years. So they're not only, I, I mean, what was breathtaking to me was that this is in his friend of the court brief on the Texas law that he essentially wrote, right? that, that uh, correct me if I'm wrong about, yeah, it was an amicus brief. Oh, this is in the Mississippi case, the one that the court is going to consider. In the consider. Mississippi case. He, right. he wrote, you know, he's now a superstar. So because because he ran, managed to write the law in Texas that managed to stay on the books. Uh, of course, he got a conservative court to think it should stay on the books and right. couldn't be uh, put on hold. But he's a superstar. So he entered a uh, friend of the court brief to the Supreme Court on the Mississippi case, and that's where he says they should take a, a sledgehammer to these other rights. Right. And, and uh, which the court is going to hear uh, next month, I believe, right? 
It's, it's fairly uh, soon. December 1st. December, December 1st. 1st. Thank you. Yeah, I, I knew it was, it was coming up. So uh, a couple of months down the road. Um, so number one, they're trying to recriminalize abortions and, and uh, have largely succeeded on that in Texas or something close to recriminalizing. Um, but number two, they're trying to recriminalize any kind of gay activity, sexual activity, and eliminate the legal protections for gay marriage. And um, it, it, this, you know, it, it, reading the Eastman memo and reading the story about the Eastman memo, and this may seem to be unrelated, but I think these tie together, where he was talking about how uh, the, the, whole, the whole reason why Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani were calling senators immediately during and immediately after the January 6th uh, attempted coup was to try to pause Congress for 24 to 48 hours on the counting of the, of the ballots so that they could reach out to Sam Alito on the Supreme Court. Uh, they were going, you know, uh, uh, the, uh, 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 what's his name, uh, the, the Texas congressman, Louis Gohmert, had filed the lawsuit. And because that would put it in the Fifth Circuit, and, and Alito has, uh, you know, kind of say over the Fifth Circuit, they figured he could, he could basically make Trump president. He could initiate the process. And my understanding is that the same thing happened with this Texas anti-abortion law, that it was... Uh, it was Alito, basically, who said, yeah, we'll look at this, but it's going to take a while. You know, we'll just let this go into effect. And then he got backed up by his fellow right-wingers on the court. Any indication that Alito is taking a lead in this stuff? Or is this, are these just coincidences? And, and has Alito, Alito expressed anti-gay marriage or, or you know, a reversal of Lawrence v. Texas types of sentiments? Yes, Alito has been a driving force on the court against gay rights, questioning marriage equality. He just gave a speech not long ago saying we should be open to question on these issues. There was also a case in which Gorsuch had basically challenged the rest of the court. This was before Kennedy had left the court, and Roberts joined with the liberals as well. But he challenged the rest of the court to allow for a challenge to Obergefell. And he was in a minority, but Alito <laughs> signed on with him. Alito's been a driving force. And to your points about Eastman, Eastman has been a driving force against LGBT rights and marriage equality. He was a defender of Proposition 8 in California from way back. He wrote a lot of the opinions challenging marriage equality. So it's all tied together. They're all tied together. It makes complete sense what you're saying. Yeah. You, you have your finger on the pulse of this, uh, particularly as it, as it affects the LGBTQ community uh, far better than I do. How do, you, how do you see this playing out, Michelangelo? Well, you know, I wrote in my uh, piece in the newsletter, it's not a question of whether the Supreme Court would do this now or not. Um, and, you know, I think this court is very political. We see them now worried about how they're being perceived in these ridiculous speeches they're giving, <laughs> saying, oh, no, we're not political hacks. Right. Yeah, Amy Coney Barrett's, yeah. Um, I think they're very worried. It's not a question of whether they would do this now not, but they have allowed an environment where people like Jonathan Mitchell are emboldened um, to make these like in, in incredible claims and leaps and demands that they should just get rid of marriage equality, that they should get sodomy bans. I mean, that would also affect everyone, not just gay people. That would affect anybody. And in terms of if a state decides they want to throw everything back to the state, so if a state decides that they don't like sodomy, that they don't care whether it's between men or women or men and women, you know, they yeah. don't want sodomy. So, I mean, the fact that they feel emboldened, and, and again with Eastman, that he felt emboldened to do what he did, uh, I, I think is is the Supreme Court inviting this. And yeah, they may not do it now, but look at what happened here with abortion. They slowly move in a direction, sort of get people used to the idea. Phyllis Schlafly used to come on my program and debate me on a whole variety of things, and I got to know her somewhat over the years. She was... Oh, I did too, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she was quite accessible. And she made the point, and I actually did a deep dive on this in, in a chapter in my book on the Supreme Court. She made the point that if the Supreme Court had not ruled in Roe in 73, 
that within a decade, the women's movement was really growing rapidly at that point in time. The birth control pill was legalized in 61, which is what kicked all this off. By 63 or 64, it was widespread availability. That if the court hadn't intervened in Roe, that by 1980, uh, abortion would have been legal pretty much everywhere in the United States anyway. And there would be no fuss about it because it would have been done through a legislative process. But because the court engaged in essentially a legislative process, changing the law, there was this huge backlash. And uh, her prescription was, if you believe that abortion should be legal, pass a damn law that says so. Which, by the way, is what, you know, Karen Bass and some others, uh, or no, I've, I've got the, my, my, the wrong member of the House, but there's, there's a, a number of members, you know, Democrats who are trying to pass a law right now to do exactly right. that, which they should have done in 1974. Mm -hmm. What about writing into law the protections in Lawrence v. Texas and, oh, I always mispronounce this. Obergefell. Uh, Obergefell, yeah. thank you. Do you see that happening? Well, you're absolutely right that there's a lot there that you said, and Phyllis Schlafly was actually <laughs> right about some things. You know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg also believed that uh, it was not great that this was done by the court and that it, you know, it, it should be done uh, in other ways and that this was going to invite these challenges. Even Roberts, John Roberts said this about Obergefell, you know, that, that it should have been done in law. I think all of these should have been followed up. Certainly, Roe v. Wade at that time, because Congress could have done it. And I think right. that was the mistake of Democrats and the left at the time not to follow up. I think today it's very hard to try to get anything passed in this Congress that would ratify same-sex marriage or even anti-sodomy bans. I mean, right. there are still sodomy bans on the books in some states, even though they're technically ruled unconstitutional, where state lawmakers just don't want to take them off. And as long as they're on the books, anybody who had been convicted of them is on a sex registry, a sex offender registry. And there are, there are gay men who are on sex offender registries, cannot get jobs because they were on it from just way for being back. gay. So, Yes, exactly. Not for having committed uh, any any particular no, crime. Just didn't for being commit any crime. Gay. Uh, and 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 so, I can't see. Look at this Republican Party. I mean, it's so radical now. Yeah. They they're not going to do anything to support yeah. the rights of anyone. Yeah. Great they, talking with you. Thank you so much. I look forward to listening to your program this afternoon after mine's off the air as I'm on my way home. Thank you, Michelangelo Signorelli, the you, the host of his own very own program here on Sirius XM three to six p.m. Eastern Time, uh, Monday through Friday. Thank you, Michael. Michelangelo. Thank you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Susan in Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, Susan, what's up? Oh, hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. I really just called to give an announcement to all the people in Wisconsin that um, the Assembly and the Senate have a joint resolution that would essentially put into place a phrase that said retain as much as possible as the core of existing districts in the redistricting in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. So I'm asking everyone in Wisconsin who's listening to your show to please call their state representative in the legislature and the Senate and tell them you don't want this resolution because it's going to make it very difficult for us to have fair maps. Correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is Wisconsin has already been heavily gerrymandered by Republicans so that right. you, you are sending far more members of the House to the House of Representatives and you have far more Republican members in the, in the House and Senate in your state than the voting populace uh, uh, would justify, essentially. Right, correct. And I said that the crux of this problem is because those existing districts were the ones drawn in secret in 2011, which are also declared unconstitutional by a group of federal judges, that those would essentially be in place for the most part. There would be yeah. very little change. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, so, Susan, uh, thank you. Thanks for the announcement. And, you know, hopefully a bunch of people in Wisconsin are listening. I, I appreciate it. Thank you. Mick in Vashon Island, Washington. Hey, Mick, thanks for listening to KBCS. What's up? Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Glad to see you're still vertical and eating <laughs> air. So far, so good. <laughs> well, this is back to the COVID thing. Um, mm -hmm. I wondered, since you're the same age or close to the same age as I am, can you tell me, Back in the day when we were handing out uh, vaccines like uh, polio, smallpox, rubella, mm -hmm. mumps, do you know 
the way that those vaccines were distributed to the population. Was it the elderly first, like this uh, current situation, or were the kids first? I don't know. I'm uh, right off the top of my head. I remember getting my smallpox vaccination. Actually, I don't remember actually getting that vaccination. I remember the scab falling off, but I don't remember if, because uh, I was a little kid, I don't remember if I got it when I was in school or in a doctor's office. I remember getting the polio vaccine in school. And I think that they probably started with kids there because polio was considered a childhood disease. Occasionally people got it as adults, but most of the people who got polio got it as children. And it, you know, and it had the potential to disable you for the rest of your life. Certainly happened to my uh, wife's grandmother. Uh, my father-in-law, too, and uh, also a classmate back when I was in school. Yeah. yeah. The reason I asked the question, Tom, because as you pointed out in the past, uh, they've lied us into all the wars, and uh, who knows how much they else they've lied us into. So, you know, what it's caused is bilateral thinking. You know, you're either vaccinated or you're not. What that eliminates, though, is doubt. I don't understand. You know the old song, uh, Fools Rush In, Where Wise Men Never Go? Yeah. Well, I think what I'm waiting for myself is the kids to get vaccinated. So I know that since we're willing to jeopardize our future, being the children. You're waiting for yourself to get vaccinated until the kids get vaccinated? That's correct. Oh, man, you're crazy, man. You're you're friggin' crazy. I'm so sorry to hear that. Tom Harbin here with you, and uh, boy, okay, so topic number two. We've talked about should hospitals deprioritize unvaccinated COVID patients? And increasingly, I'm coming to the conclusion that the answer to that is yes. I realize how difficult that is for our healthcare professionals and providers and, and how brutal that sounds, but yes. And then now to take it to the next step, why doesn't America stick to their guns, no pun intended, on vaccine mandates for police? I mean, you know, they're going to just step up like United Airlines. You know, United Airlines, they said, everybody has to get vaccinated unless you have a religious exemption. They had like a thousand people, 26,000 employees, right? They had like a thousand people come out with these, you know, religious cards that they bought online from this uh, huckster in Kansas or wherever, this guy who claims to be a pastor. And United said, okay, cool. If you're going to claim a religious exemption, we're going to put you on unpaid leave until you get vaccinated. All of a sudden, everybody's vaccinated at United Airlines. They asked the CEO last week, how many people are not vaccinated? He said, it's in single digits. Fewer than 10 out of 26,000 employees. You know, being a cop is a pretty good job, by and large. There's a, a, a high level of kind of camaraderie. There's a, a, you know, a sense of, of community associated with being a police officer that you don't very often find in workplaces that a lot of people really, I mean, you, know, you kind of get a sense of this on the cop shows. Um, and if you've ever known a police officer, or I, you know, I went through the Georgia Police Academy, I've known a bunch of police officers. There's, there's a, a kind of we're in this together thing. There's also really good pay. I mean, the police in, in Portland make more than the mayor. In many cases, you've got police in Portland who are making $100,000, $150,000 a year when you add in overtime and things. And it's a secure job and you get a pension. And your pension can be, it depends on the city, but it can be up to 90% of your pay for the rest of your life. Typically it's less than 90, but sometimes, you know, sometimes, hey, 90 and out, right? So why are we letting cops say, no, I don't want to get vaccinated? I, you know, I, I am strongly of the opinion from the Florida police unions are saying, you know, we don't want we don't want you to tell us what to do. Tell them what to do. Just like with United, they will do it here in Portland. Same thing. An attorney for the Portland Police Association is, uh, you know, outlining arguments. This is in the uh, Oregonian. Why they shouldn't be. We shouldn't force vaccination. Yes, we should. Come on. These are people who interact with the public. Let's say you. Is it time to say to police and firefighters and, and emergency responders, if you're not vaccinated, you're out?
Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Boy, a lot here. I mean, just, just to get back on this, the Portland Police Bureau says that they don't track vaccination rates. They're not really sure right now. It does look like the uh, BOEC, that's the Bureau of uh, Emergency Communications, which is associated with the police department, reached high 80s, high 80 percent. But uh, the police unions down in Florida, the police union in Florida, they had uh, two funerals in the Tampa Bay region for, for cops who, got, who died of COVID in one week. COVID-19 is now considered the single highest cause of death among law enforcement officers, according to the National Law Enforcement Memorial Fund mid-year 2020, excuse me, 2021 report. Uh, this is from ABC Action News. According to the, this is an ABC television station down in Florida. According to the Fraternal Order of Police, more than 630 nationwide, officers nationwide have died from COVID. In Florida, 57 police officers are known to have died from COVID. They're second only to Texas in the number of cops who have died from COVID. And so what does the head of the, of the Florida Police Benevolent Association say, the head of the police union in Florida? As a union head, we don't like being mandated or pushed into anything. Isn't that like, you know, something a 10-year-old would say about having to put on their galoshes on a rainy day or, I mean, it's, really? That's amazing. Anyhow, picking up your phone calls here, Ari in Eureka, California. Hey, Ari, what's up? Hi, Tom. I wanted to report in on my uh, little small retail business mm -hmm. here in Humboldt County. For the past two weeks, I have been requiring vaccine cards for anybody entering our shop. Mm -hmm. um, my entire fax, uh, uh, staff is fully vaccinated. And if you want to come and shop in my store, you have to show your vaccination card. And uh, at first, it was a big problem, and people walked out. But the past few days, 100% of my customers have been happy to show their card, and they even thanked me for doing it because they felt safe shopping in our little store. So step one is filter out the crazies. And, yes. and then, then the step two is, you know, welcome in everybody else. And, and I, you know, I, I do need to acknowledge there are some people who can't get vaccinated or whose doctors have said don't get vaccinated right now. People who have, you know, autoimmune, severe autoimmune disorders um, or on certain right. types of chemotherapy, those people should get a, a pass, a medical exemption. But they're, they're, they're not even a fraction. I mean, they're barely even a fraction of 1% uh, of the population. I have one customer like that, and I do delivery or curbside for her. Yeah. I'm happy to do it. Yeah, there you go. But uh, otherwise, yeah, uh, amen. Okay, thank you very much, Ari. Appreciate the call. Lance in uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, and, and good on you, Ari, for, for what you're doing there. Lance in Wilmington, North Carolina, uh, says here you're going to be the devil's advocate. Which particular devil is that? Hey, Tom, thanks for taking my call. Hey, I, I just wanted to go back to the um, insurance companies, you know, dropping people who are unvaccinated that are in the hospital. Well, they're not or, dropping or, them. They're, uh, just, they're just saying, you know, you're, you're going to... They used to cover... 
the co-pays and the parts that were, were not covered by insurance, out-of-network stuff, if the anesthesiologist or whatever was out-of-network. Now they're saying, nope, we're going to start hitting you with all those bills. Okay, Just like no, I got you. I'm with you. What, and then what about people who, let's say they have heart disease and they're, they're in the hospital, isn't that a preventable disease as well? Could, you know, it's kind of a slippery slope argument. I think heart disease costs the U.S. $360 billion a year. I think it kills almost 700,000 people a year. Why, why just stop at unvaccinated um, Americans with COVID? Why, not we, why don't we look at all the other comorbidities that are um, you know, preventable and, and take a look at that as well? Why, why just stop at uh, unvaccinated COVID? Yeah, COVID good, good, good question, Lance. Heart disease is the leading cause of death in the United States, um, uh, or at least among men. I think it is among women too. Uh, and, and here's the deal. Uh, we are living, you know, longer than we typically used to, uh, at least before antibiotics, and things start giving out at a certain point. And uh, heart disease, you know, your heart has been beating ever since you were born. In fact, in, since before you were born, uh, just as the governor of Texas. And at a certain point, it starts to wear out. Uh, if there was a vaccine that anybody with any kind of heart disease could take, they would immediately clear their arteries or revive the, the electrical conductivity within their heart chambers. And somebody refused to take that vaccine. And, and you know, the side effects to it were relatively inconsequential and, and nobody had died of the vaccine. Then I would, I would be with you and I would say, uh, yeah, if, if you know, somebody chooses to have heart disease, but by and large, people don't choose to have heart disease. Uh, you know. Well, they choose to they choose to be unhealthy and live unhealthy lifestyles. So, I mean, that's 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 your choice. Either you know live a healthy lifestyle or suffer the consequences are, of possibly getting not, heart disease. I mean, that, that's not, the choice people make. And, no, it's not. It's right. uh, you, 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 oh, I mean, well, yeah, to a certain extent, you know, you, you can say somebody who who uh, lives a very very unhealthy lifestyle. Yeah, it's fairly predictable that they're going to end up with some of these conditions. Kind of um, like people who are unvaccinated. But no, it's, it's a, literally that, a completely making, different thing. I think, I, I, think I kind of got it across to you. No, it's a completely different thing, Lance, because people who live, people who eat at McDonald's and people who are, you know, living on, on Domino's pizza and whatnot, I, don't, I shouldn't just name names because, you know, but whatever. Um, people who choose a lifestyle that is not going to be healthy for them are doing what our culture tells them to do. They are doing what hundreds of billions of dollars are spent every year trying to convince them to do. They are doing something that is not at all out of the ordinary in our country. In fact, it is the norm. One quarter to one third of all Americans are obese, for example. You know, one of the highest obesity rates in the developed world because we have industries telling people to do this. And as I said, there isn't a vaccine or a pill that you can take that's gonna prevent heart disease. There is a vaccine you can take that will prevent COVID. 99% efficacy in terms of preventing death, 97% in terms of preventing hospitalization. There is a vaccine available. Nobody has died from that vaccine. The side effects are minimal. So, you know, this is Nobody not an apples to apples comparison. Tom? Yeah, this Tom, is not an apples to apples comparison. No, there is, no, to the best of my knowledge, the there's not a single case of anybody who can trace their death to the vaccine. Of course, people sure, die all sure the time. People who, Lance, yeah. correlation is not causation. Tom, I've seen this Tom, on, the, on the message argument. boards. I was just playing devil's advocate. Yeah, but you know you're not playing devil's advocate. You're, you're trying to discourage people from getting vaccinated, and I think it's wrong. No, no, but the fact I, of the matter is that, that, that I'm there not, are I'm people who got vaccinated and then died. They probably they would have died anyway, right? I mean, this this is there are people who are dying all the time, and sometimes they get vaccinated just before they get died. But what you find is that on Facebook and on other social media, you'll find you know these these uh, people who I think frankly hate America or at least hate Joe Biden enough that they're willing to let their friends die to try to hurt you know the uh, Democratic administration. Um, saying, oh, look at this, George uh, got the vaccine, and then, you know, a week later he died of, of a heart attack, but he died, you know, maybe the vaccine caused it. It didn't cause it. No, it didn't cause it. Lance, I, I, you know, I'm not going to debate this any further with you. Bob in Portland. Hey, Bob, what's up? Hey, Tom, uh, take a moment here. Part, I think the biggest part is we're not talking about the right things. And let me just give me a, a few seconds here to go. When you told when you talked to the guy about the vaccine and when he finally said something, finally got to the point 
that he wasn't going to get vaccinated until the kids did because of the polio and all that stuff. And he led you all around and then finally said that. And you said he was crazy. Yeah. But well, what okay, he's doing now, is he's saying now, the let, children let, let, are my human shield. <laughs> I know. But now here, but you see what I think the point that that what you missed, and this is important. First of all, I want to say one thing while I can. The argument about freedom is absurd. Every one of these people, when they go to their, these meetings and they get up in the morning and their coffee machine was regulated by the government, they get into the car and they drive on the right side of the road. If they're from England, they still drive on the right. They don't have the freedom to drive on the left side of the road because it'd be chaos. They don't have freedom from the minute they get up to the minute they go to sleep to do anything they want. And the vaccine, the difference of the vaccine and heart disease, it's contagious. And the other thing that makes me crazy is that all the people that didn't want to get vaccinated all wore 95 masks all the time in public. It wouldn't be a big problem. If when it yeah, first right. happened, before the vaccine happened, they said eighty percent efficiency if everybody wore masks. So if this whole this which is which is what they did in Taiwan and South Korea and Japan, by I the way, know, I, and it and it could be happening tomorrow. I think the fact that the hospitals are filling up with all these people because of this insanity is just going to make that whole area it's like you can't if we start that slippery slope of well you know you didn't work out yesterday so you don't get into the doctor because your heart and you you're 20 pounds overweight that's not going to solve the problem no. the problem is that letting everybody see the consequences of this incredible stupidity the vaccines are safe but that guy the point i wanted to make is that guy doesn't trust the government on a level that about vietnam about afghanistan about a million other things and so he so He's been convinced that and if he stays home and wears a mask all the time, he can have that ability to not get vaccinated as long as he protects everybody else around him by wearing a mask. Then he won't be so dangerous. But if he's got it, he walks into any place and coughs. Everybody around him is exposed. That's the message that has gotten lost. It's not freedom. You wear a mask because it's contagious. It's not heart disease. It's not diabetes. It's contagious. Yeah, brilliant point. And by the way, you're highly contagious for two to three days before you have symptoms. So, Even if you don't have symptoms, you're contagious. That's and that's my point. the part that really freaks me out. Yeah, that's well, my point. Yeah. You know, people feel perfectly healthy. They're out running and running right by you and breathing all over you. And, you know, exactly. it's, not, it's still two, three days before they actually show symptoms and get sick. But they're, but they're blowing off viruses like there's no tomorrow. Bob, excellent points. Thank you. is Alicia Sadowski, the uh, researcher with Media Matters and one of the authors of this extraordinary new report. It's uh, <laughs> Bear, Bile, Vaping, and Sunlight, a list of Fox News' supposed COVID-19 cures and treatments. Alicia, welcome to the program. Let's, let's uh, start out with, I, does, did this research and and this long it's a shocking list of things that have been promoted on air on fox news as alternatives essentially to to vaccine i suppose or whatever but have you been able to determine why they would be doing this rather than simply telling people to get vaccinated i mean absolutely Uh, first of all thank you for having me um and i mean i think it speaks to the larger hypocrisy about fox news um they have a more restrictive vaccine mandate and testing policy than even the biden administration is proposing uh, which suggests that company heads um, and even their employees believe in the vaccine and they believe in the science and so um, it demonstrates that they're putting profits over safety Uh, the daily beast just had an article on Tuesday that uh, quoted a Fox insider saying that this vaccine undermining, it's great for ratings. Wow. This vaccine undermining is great for ratings. I mean, this is, it's like we were talking earlier about how the algorithm, you know, Facebook is addicted to their algorithm the way that junkies are addicted to opioids. Um, and it, it seems like we've got the same thing here with over at Fox News. It's that the more they can push weird, fringy stuff, 
the more people are engaged with them. Give, give us some examples of, of some of the, the things that Fox News has been pushing as ways to deal with COVID as alternatives to actually real medicine and you know, real vaccines. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned um, in our title, we have Bear Bile. Um, and Bear Bile came from one Fox anchor, Shannon Bream, from Fox News at night. And in an introduction, she talked about Bear Bile as a potential COVID-19 treatment. Wait a second, and, wait a second, uh, wait a second, wait a second. Bile is the stuff that comes out of the gallbladder, right? The liver produces this. It's, yeah. it's like it's uh, one of the digestive enzymes that gets dumped into the stomach or small intestine or something. And why, why would you want to take the bile from the gallbladder of a bear for COVID? It actually comes from Chinese medicine, and in March 2020, some Chinese doctors were suggesting that it could potentially help, right. uh, but studies here have proven that there's been no evidence that it has actually helped. And so uh, Shannon Bream, and within the segment, um, they failed to clarify that there is no accepted treatment for COVID-19, and um, there is no evidence specifically for bear bile. Wow. And bear bile, if I, I remember, I read your uh, report a little while ago, and um, my recollection is that bear bile can be contaminated with pus, with bacteria, with all kinds of weird things because it's like extracted from bears. Absolutely. Um, and it's just it's another reason why this is an unproven treatment. It's complex and there is a simple solution, which is to just get vaccinated. Right, right. Uh, you know, we had a troll caller uh, going on about how, uh, you know, the real scientists are going to tell you the real, you know, it's like, this is the kind of stuff, is Fox still, I haven't watched Fox, frankly, in several months. Are they still peddling this, that, that uh, you know, the science is sketchy and some of the scientists disagree and uh, the vaccines are, you know, baby parts and all this. Is, is that stuff still going on over at Fox News? Absolutely. Um, Media Matters had a study about um, a month ago um, that uh, our, our first part of the study from June 20th to July 11th, 57 uh, percent of the segments about coronavirus or coronavirus vaccines, um, they undermined them. Huh. Um, the next two weeks, it was 53 uh, percent of segments. And then um, from July 26th to August 8th, which was the last uh, portion of our study, it was 63% of their segments undermine COVID vaccines. Um, so again, it speaks to the fact that they're going back to their ratings and um, they're telling their audience what they want to hear, but not what will keep them safe. So uh, it sounds like what you're suggesting, I mean, particularly given that Rupert Murdoch actually jumped the line and got the vaccine before other people, you know, before he should have been eligible. And, and, and that at Fox News, they require everybody to be vaccinated. They've got their own vaccine pass, a passport, you know, at Fox News. And uh, their, their VP of human resources or whatever they call the guy, he's bragging about the fact that they've got over 90% vaccination rate. And if you're not vaccinated, you've got to be tested every day. I mean, that, that's pretty radical stuff. So they obviously believe in the vaccine from the, from the top all the way down to the people on the air. And yet, in order to make money, they are encouraging people to get sick and die? Um, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, it's, that's clear because what would keep their audience safe is telling them that there's a simple solution um, that's overwhelming, effective right. and safe, and that is to get vaccinated. Um, but what they have done is they've tried to desensitize their audience to the need for robust clinical trials and testing and undermining um, that general phrase, the science says because their audience um, wants to push back against that. And so they're following um, that lead, which is um, harmful for their audience's health. Are you seeing any indications that, uh, you know, I, I, occasionally I see like, you know, the, the, the news guys, you know, Chris Wallace uh, kind of folks over on, on uh, I don't know if Brett Baer is still there, but you know, the news guys on, on Fox News. Uh, you know, kind of reporting straight up that the vaccines work and you should get vaccinated, all this kind of thing. Is there, is, is Fox trending toward that, away from that? Or are, are, have they been maintaining this position for a long time? I mean, wh which direction are they moving? 
I mean, you can definitely argue that their opinion side programs, as we like to describe them as Laura Ingram, Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, they are moving fastly and rapidly toward um, this continuing undermining of the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see a little bit more um, of the hard news aspect. You mentioned Brett there, but at the same time, um, he's still, he still fails to sometimes um, promote the correct vaccine and treatment. Um, we had an example of um, him allowing a um, guest to promote anecdotal evidence of therapeutics and uh, blood thinners rather than just saying to his audience uh, they should get the vaccine. Right. Um, I I noticed in your report you listed a whole bunch of different drugs, some of which I'd never even heard of, and and others like Losartan is a blood pressure drug, I think. Uh, You've got uh, several different antibiotics. You want to share just a quick list of things with our listeners that Fox has been promoting as alternatives to actual treatments for COVID? Sure. We have everything from azithromycin to doxycycline to, you mentioned Lazartin. There's nasal washes to our kind of crazier aspects of Sean Hannity one time suggested. Vaping could prevent coronavirus sunlight and then of course what we were talking about earlier is bare bile so there's this strong list of potential complex drugs that they're offering when again there's a simple solution which is to get vaccinated right and we know that some of the sites that have been promoting these kinds of so-called alternative remedies in fact this came out as a result of a big uh, hack of one of the right-wing website host companies they're selling ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine at the same time that they're essentially recommending them i you know i suppose if you really believe that they work selling them makes sense but is there any evidence that these people actually believe this i mean they 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 work in an environment where they're required to be vaccinated yeah i mean as you just said all evidence points to the fact that they're still putting uh, the profiting off of the sickness of their audience um this piece doesn't say that uh, none of the listed stores or drugs have been effective at preventing or haven't helped some people but they're unproven and the vaccine is overwhelmingly effective and safe and fda authorized right you can read it all at mediamatters.org alicia sadowski one of the researchers who put together the report one of the authors of the report alicia thanks so much for dropping by thank you great talking with you VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Joe in Cupertino. Hey, Joe, what's up? Tom, I wanted to get out your answer to this question about, you know, public safety employees working and not getting vaccinated. It's a condition of employment. So when they're coming in the door, they're not vaccinated. They don't get hired. And if you're already on one on the floor, you have a myriad of requirements in order to work. You have to have TB test. You have to have hepatitis B. You have to have all of these immunizations in order to work. Now, this one specific one, if you don't want to take it, labor goes or management goes to the labor board to the unions and says, look, if your employees or if your members don't want to take vaccine, then we're not going to cover them or their spouses or anything that occurs as a result of their failure to take what is a 
available to everybody. The federal government just. But how are you going to hold them accountable for the people that they infect? You know, if somebody says, hey, there's a burglar in my house, the police show up, they check around the house, they scare the burglar away, whatever, and the cop is infected with COVID and, and breathes it all over the house, and now grandma's dying. What do you do? He doesn't, he doesn't get to do his job. In other words, he doesn't get to not, he can't serve the public. That's their job, to protect and serve. My Firemen point. can't grow a beard, a, a beard because he can't wear the breathing apparatus, so he has to shave his beard. He doesn't want to shave his beard, but if he wants to be a fireman, he's got to be able to go into those immediate life safety uh, environments safely, or he can't conduct his job. And that's the same for a police officer. He can't protect and serve if he could potentially spread an illness like tuberculosis, for say, to say the least. Yeah, you're right. They I mean, they do those TB tests for everybody who, you know, you know uh, and you're, nurses, and, and doctors, cops. Beach. Yeah, but you're put on the beach if you can't work and you got to wait until you recover. And then yeah. you come back to work where you're clear. Yeah. Not to, it's man, it's labor's job, or should I say it's management's job. That's the mayor. That's the yeah. city manager. It seems pretty straightforward. No, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm with you, Joe. Thank you. Clinton in Los Angeles. Hey, Clinton, what's up? Hi, Tom. I just wanted to mention that concerning the COVID issue, uh, you and callers have mentioned uh, the issue of running out of space in hospitals. And I think what we failed to mention is the issue of beds in hospitals is due to profit motive. Oh, you're right. So having more Especially beds, in rural areas. We've had, we've had hundreds of rural hospitals closed in the last 15, 20 years because of hospital consolidation. Yeah, and so, so having more beds uh, cuts in their profits because they don't want to have more customers in beds. They want to have a rotating system. So with that kind of, with, with not having emergency beds just sitting around, it's almost like real estate for them. <laughs> you know, yeah. No one's paying rent. Why would we have this? Right. And so, you know. And I they also staff that. right close to the bone. Uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I know people who work in, in hospitals, and, and it's like the staffing is just like super, super tight. Uh, because everything is being run on on these kind of uh, let's run it like a business lines. Yeah, and it, it makes a good argument for socializing medicine. It's not just about socializing medicine; it's about socializing the whole profit system of hospitals. That yeah. would, that in a time like this <laughs> would be way more beneficial. <laughs> right? Are they part of the commons or are they not? Yeah, I, and I just wondered, like, like I read the uh, Bob Wood, Wood, Woodard's, I know he has another book out now, but I read Rage, and uh -huh. he mentioned playbook for response to high-consequence emerging infectious disease threats and biological incidents, which was a playbook that Obama put out, and I wonder if it would have addressed those issues. I don't know. but it, it, The it, pandemic uh, playbook that Obama put out would have addressed uh, SARS-CoV-2. Um, it, it would have. And uh, Donald Trump disposed of that in the second year of his administration. So it was not available, you know, in the fourth year when this hit. Thank you. Jonathan in Portland. Hey, Jonathan, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Really enjoying the show today. Thank you. Piece of news out of Taiwan from last August, they're having the opposite problem in Taiwan, where we're overloading our hospitals. Their clinics are threatened with closing. About a quarter of the pediatric clinics don't have enough patients because their patient load has diminished by 60% because why? All the masks and the social distancing. That's why. Oh, so and the kids in Taiwan are not getting the flu and other respiratory diseases, and so they're not showing up at the, at the clinic, and <laughs> so they've got too many beds. Is that what you're correct. saying? That's exactly what I'm saying, and they're now threatened with closure, so the government is going to have to subsidize the clinics. Wow. Well, Amazing. That's, that's off the charts. And, you know, you look, at, you look at the statistics in Taiwan, three deaths out of 100,000. United States, 210 deaths out of 100,000. And by the way, there's been an uptick. Most people haven't noticed. But just recently, it was just under 200 per 100,000. Now it's up 210. That's an uptick of 5%. I mean... Here in the United States, yeah. In the United States, according to Johns Hopkins. Yeah. This, this is, and, and it is uh, uniquely happening, and it's just like, this has become absolutely undeniable. It's uniquely happening among uh, Trump voters, by and large. 
And, yeah. uh, you know, and uh, I don't think this is going to affect the voting populace so much because the death rate from COVID is only around 1%. But uh, it, it's, uh, this has so clearly now become a political disease, particularly when you consider the countries like Taiwan. You know, I opened the book, uh, The Hidden History of American Healthcare, with the story of Taiwan. How, you know, throughout all of 2020, they had like fewer than a dozen deaths because they took it seriously right from the get-go and they used their national healthcare system for a national contact tracing, a, a testing and contact tracing program. And that's what we could be doing. I mean, you know, it's, it's uh, we absolutely should. Jonathan, thank you for that. Karen in Los Angeles. Hey, Karen, what's up? Or uh, New Orleans, excuse me, in New Orleans, Louisiana. Hey, Karen, what's up? Well, uh, Tom, the hospitals that are overflowing with COVID patients mm -hmm. should have a tent hospital in the parking lot and right next to the refrigerated trucks because the morgues are overflowing. And when you go in the hospital with COVID, you asked, do you have a vaccination? No. You go to the tent hospital. You have a vaccination? Yes. You go to the brick and mortar hospital and let them look at those morgues of refrigerated trucks sitting next to them. Visual aids go a long way. That's brilliant, Karen. And, and essentially what you're arguing is the same thing I was saying a few minutes ago about how we used to treat tuberculosis. We used exactly. to segre segregate TB patients. It wasn't because they made bad choices. You know, it was because we didn't have a cure for it and it was a contagious airborne disease. But, but uh, you know, still we segregated the patients. And, and uh, yeah, why not do that? Okay, I'm with you. Thank, Thank you so much because you, uh, you're the only person I ever met in my life that agrees with me 99% of the time. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Karen. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, nice to hear from you. John in Queens, New York. Hey, John, what's up? Yeah, Tom, how are you? Um, um, listen, this is about Lance from Florida. You spoke to him a little while ago. Mm -hmm. And I just want to point out that the insurance companies are really rich, and their actuaries take into account uh, what you might call the standard ways of dying, like heart disease and cancer. But anything above and beyond that, yeah, you, you run the risk of getting a higher premium or lower coverage. Last You're few right. I was working. I'm the, yeah, the last few years I was working, I, um, I'm retired now. But the last five or six years I was working, uh, when we filled out our benefits every autumn, like we had to do, if you were a smoker, you paid more. Correct. Or you got, you know, you, you got less. So they take stuff like that into account. So if they start charging a little more uh, in one way or another for unvaccinated people, I think that's just pretty much the way they do business. You know, they're, they're not going to lose any money. Yeah, the, the thing is, they can't charge more right now because Obamacare basically put a ceiling on, on what insurance companies can charge. But what they can do is they can start, you know, aggressively passing along co-payments and the, the things that they legally can do that, that for the last year were suspended. For the last year, they were paying for everything. And they were still showing a profit, by the way. And, and now they're starting to say, eh, I don't think we're going to cover that. Uh, you know, John, thank you. Thank you for pointing that out, that, that insurance companies actually charge more if you're a smoker. So, you know, again, it blows up this whole argument about, well, what about my choice? Yes, you can pay for your choice. Tom Harbin here with you. So I got this uh, email from the National Republican Study Committee saying that, you know, Joe Manchin, and Chuck Schumer, back on July 28th, worked out a deal that uh, this $3.5 trillion deal would be no bigger than $1.5 trillion. And uh, apparently, Joe Manchin dropped this document that says, top line, what, his agreement to start budget resolution. Now, keep in mind, this was in July. Top line, $1.5 trillion. Begin debate on reconciliation bill no earlier than October 1, 2021. Funds the new legislature cannot be dispersed into bloody blood blood. And it goes through and it looks to me like it's almost laying out what became the $1 trillion bipartisan deal. But what Manchin is saying is these were his terms for what it has become the $3.5 trillion deal. Now Schumer's office, and I, you know, if, if if this was some kind of double cross, you, you might understand why Schumer has been so silent recently. If, if not, then, well, he's starting to push back now because now the Republicans have this document because Joe Manchin made it public and they're, they're, you know, like I said, I got it in email just as somebody who once, you know, five, six years ago gave, gave five or $15, I forget which, to the Trump campaign. 
So I'm on everybody's list, right? So, uh, or maybe it's because I'm a talk show host too, but, uh, but usually, you know, sometimes I get stuff from them addressed to Fred Flintstone. Anyhow, this is how Schumer is responding. Schumer is saying, uh, Leader Schumer never agreed to any of the conditions Senator Manchin laid out. He merely acknowledged where Senator Manchin was on the subject at the time. Senator Manchin did not rule out voting for a reconciliation bill that exceeded the ideas he outlined, and Leader Schumer made clear that he would work to convince Senator Manchin to support a final reconciliation bill, as he has been doing for weeks. And in fact, down at the bottom, underneath Chuck Schumer's signature in blue pen, Chuck Schumer wrote, uh, I will try to convince uh, Joe. It's really hard to read Schumer's writing, handwriting, but uh, it, it's, I, I will try to dissuade Joe on many of these. So in other words, this is just, yeah, okay, we understand. But it looks to me like, uh, at the very least, Joe Manchin was playing a long game here. That he was, he was ready for this. Uh, whether he came up with this or whether it, you know, it was cooked up in some right-wing think tank or, or some left-wing think tank. I mean, you know, it might have come out of the, the so-called problem solvers or the so-called no labels. You know, the, 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 the group that has a lot of Democrats that's funded by Wall Street. I don't know. I don't know. But it's troubling. It's troubling. Welcome to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Bob Nay's book, Sideswiped, Lessons Learned Courtesy of the Hitmen of Capitol Hill. Bob was the only member of Congress. He was a Republican congressman. In fact, he was the guy who invented the phrase freedom fries. That far right, yes. He was the only member of Congress who spoke Farsi, which is the language they speak in Iran. The Iranian government during the Bush administration, George W. Bush, sent a letter to or delivered a letter to Bob in Farsi, because he spoke Farsi, saying that they were willing to recognize Israel and stop their nuclear program in exchange for recognition by the United States. Bob delivered that to the Bush White House. And within a short time, Bob found himself in a federal prison. And that letter never surfaced. And that rapprochement never happened. It's an amazing story. It's, a, it's too long to read as an excerpt, but it's in the book the end of Bob's political career. Now he's working for Talk Media News. But this is from chapter 17 of his book. It's titled Political Strong Arming. I had a major blowout over the Head Start program with Andy Card, President George W. Bush's chief of staff. The first of the legislation debates centered on Head Start. John Boehner was doing his best to acquire votes to hurt the program. I had supported Head Start for years as an Ohio State Senator and again as a U.S. Congressman. When George Bush became president, however, every issue, including this one, was treated as though, if lost, it would be the end of the world, as if winning were vital to save the presidency. Speaker Hastert became a lapdog for President Bush. Didn't matter whether it was overspending, crushing unions, or ripping the legs out from under head start, Hastert acted like the president ran the House instead of the other way around. I found myself under intense pressure to vote against head start. I was bombarded by all sides, Tom DeLay, Hastert's staff, and the chairman of the Education Committee, which at the time was John Boehner. I found it amazing that a sitting president would make a do-or-die issue over taking money away from poor children who needed to jump on school, a head start. Anyone in the field of education knew that Head Start had a rocky beginning, but it had proven to be statistically and socially a very fine program, and I had always supported it. I had a private hideaway, an office the speaker gives to leaders and uh, long-term older members of Congress that very few people knew about. Even Brian Walsh, my press secretary, was unaware. On this particular evening, I was in that Capitol hideaway, one floor directly below the chamber. I was sick and tired of being lobbied and bullied on this vote. I had to escape the arm twisting. I used to say it was so bad that you could hear the bones snap on the floor of the house. My private phone in the hideaway was ringing, so I knew that only Ted Van Der Mead of the Speaker's office could have given it out. Chris Kruger, my executive assistant, answered it and signaled me that it was Andy Card, the White House Chief of Staff. Andy said, we need this head start vote. It's critical to the Bush administration's future. I was stunned at this. The entire future of the Bush administration was predicated on beating up on little unfortunate kids by taking away their head start funding. I thought this was idiocy and stupid politics. 
I said, I have always supported Head Start over my entire career. I don't like this vote, and I just cannot help you. Card blew up at me and responded with, let me make this clear. Boehner said you were a vote for us, and we are holding you to that. I don't know where Boehner got that from, I said. I can rethink this, but I, but I don't like it, and I'm sure I will not change my mind. Andy then said, you are an effing liar. Only spells out the word. And I said, F you, Andy, and your idiotic administration. And I hung up on him. I went to the floor of the house where Boehner confronted me. I told him, Andy is disrespectful, way out in left field on this. He can kiss my ass and, and F him, period. Boehner continued to strong arm me. They were one vote short. It boiled down to the fact that this vote was so hideous, so wrong, that they simply could not get the votes. One of my best friends in Congress, Steve LaTourette, took a bullet for me on this to move the bill along. He told him to back off on me and he would help through the process in the House, but not necessarily if or when the vote came back from the Senate. Second time Andy Card ran afoul of Congress, he had to confront Congressman Steve LaTourette. Steve was one of the finest members of Congress, very brave in his positions, an independent thinker, good at politics, and no wallflower. He's conservative on some issues, but he cares deep down about working people and how they survive in America. We all kept up a tough front. Transportation unions lobbyists for the building trades, like Tim James, was very effective and helped at the labor Republicans push back. Bush 43, though, kept putting up roadblocks at every step. He simply did not want a transportation bill that might support the unions. John Micah, transportation subcommittee chair during a private Republican caucus meeting, made the best statement of the day. John said, hell, the president doesn't think we need a bill. As he travels in cities by car, they stop all the traffic for his motorcade. He thinks there are no traffic problems. The streets are deserted. We all howled. So anyhow, there's just all these amazing inside stories about how Congress actually works. It's pretty grim. The book Sideswiped by Bob Ney. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 